irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You're listening to the Power of Love Radio Show only on LA Talk Radio. Welcome to the Power of Love, sponsored by the Dee Dee Jackson Foundation. We believe that through the power of love, everything is possible with love on your side. I am TJ Jackson, and with me I have my two brothers, Taj and Terrell Jackson. How are you guys? Good. How What's are going you on, T? Everything's good, man. It's, just, it's a great day. You know, this is my favorite time of the year. the The weather's like perfect. I, I mean, yeah. everyone knows I like the rain, but I just like when it's not hot and it's the wind. And I like when you walk around the store and you're hearing, you know, the holiday jingles That's and. The, you know, it's, it's a festive yeah, it's time. Festive. It's a good time of the year. Is my mic hot? As in loud? Yeah. No, you just, you want me to turn you down? I, I I, I'll mute I you if you want. I hear every sound I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> don't mute me yet. <laughs> you sure? Yeah. I don't mind muting you. I know you don't. We are live on the Power of Love radio show. So if you're listening to us right now, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. Later on in the show, we're going to open up the phone lines. Um, if you want to call in, call in at 323-203-0815. Again, it's 323-203-0815. Please ask us if you call in a question on topic. Don't ask again what Terrell's favorite color is or what is Todd's favorite snack. We don't really want to hear that at the moment. We want to hear questions on our topic. Today, we have an awesome guest. Before we get into that, um, we should do the disclaimer, and I know my brothers won't, right? Taj, Terrell? No, you got it. Correct. All right. We are not licensed therapists. We're just ordinary people who have experienced loss in our lives. We've been impacted by it. We've learned from it, and we want to share our opinions and attempt to help you overcome what you're going through. Saying that, if you need professional help, we urge you to seek it and find it. Don't just rely on us. With that said, I'll go straight into your week, Terrell. How was your week, man? It was good. Did you do anything? Was, um... Well, I feel like you were gone last week. I was gone so last week. We but that's a, my week. We had, incredible, <laughs> we had an incredible show last week. <laughs> so, What's he talking about? Talking about our oh, show. Oh, the radio. The, the, yeah, okay. You were gone. Okay. So, was it really good? Well, I didn't we, listen. We were getting messages and comments. It was like they, the people really loved it. Okay, good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you trying no, to make it me was feel fun. bad? Yeah, Louis filled in, so it was good. We, we had a good time and caught up, and we... Um, uh, we had a good show. Good. And we talked about, you know, you are obviously in Thanksgiving, so the, our topic was pretty much about um, growing and the family evolving and the changes yeah. of that. Yeah. But um, Thanksgiving was cool. It was fine. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what else is going on this week, the past week. We'll come it, back to it, it flies so fast. It really does. That unless there's something like huge, mm-hmm. it, it kind of just escapes you, which is kind of sad. Yeah. It's, we're already like pretty much in December now, so. Taj, this may be a lost question, but do you have anything that happened last week? Uh, Thanksgiving was great. Uh, went to Auntie Lourdes's. Nice. She always has something during Thanksgiving. That was always nice to see Auntie Lourdes and the whole crew. So, um, yeah, besides that, um, not really much. Cool. <laughs> hey, you said keep it short. <laughs> We're trying to get it keep short. It. Yeah. All right, well, I'll, 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 I'll say I went to Texas. I visited my wife's family. Uh, my nieces, nephews, and I guess you would say my sister-in-laws. Um, it was really good with, you know, I, I think a lot of times, and I actually did a post on this, a lot of times if, you, you know, if you're married and the spouse has left their original town, 
it's good to take those moments and to go back and reconnect with that side of the family, you know, and, and especially here in Los Angeles, time goes so fast that sometimes time can escape you and a year has passed and two mm-hmm. years and you haven't even seen, you know, a whole another side of the family. Mm-hmm. And it's not only good for obviously your spouse and yourself, but it's also good for your kids, you know, so yeah. my kids got to connect with their cousins that it, they don't get to see so much. So um, if you didn't do it this Thanksgiving, I suggest you do it maybe in the winter break or spring break. Try to connect with your other side of the family. Or during the holidays. Or the, that's the winter break, right? Well, you, I guess. Are you paying attention to what's, what's going on? I don't know. I don't, coffee, I don't you, kids. I don't know what winter you. break is. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> I love you, Taj. Um, okay, so d- is there anything else? I guess we should do the, the, the handles. You want to yes. do the handles real quick, Taj? Um, Twitter is at DDJ Foundation. Facebook is D-E-E-D-E-E Jackson Foundation. Instagram is at D-E-E-D-E-E Jackson Foundation. The website is www.ddjf.org. Thank you, Taj. And I will be on Twitter checking everyone to see yes. if there's questions. Taj is manning the Twitter handles. He doesn't have his laptop like normally. He's on his phone. What's going on? No, the laptop's it's, down. It's on the floor. Oh, oh, okay. I'm trying to be professional for our guests. Well, he's taking video, so I don't... <laughs> okay. Looks, it doesn't look as good. Okay. He, as in Royal, is here uh, doing yeah. some internship. <laughs> he's very happy about it <laughs> yeah. all right so we're gonna without further ado we're gonna get into our guest um our guest is rabbi steve leader he's the senior rabbi of wilshire boulevard temple a large and prestigious synagogue in los angeles um i'm horrible at at intro so i know there's a cum laude degree in writing from northwestern university he studied at trinity college oxford and there's a lot of other great stuff but really what really got me, um, Rabbi Steve, was your book, your new book that had, was released November 7th, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I have it right here, and um, a colleague of mine was reading it, and that's how I learned of it. It's more beautiful than before. Um, it's not available because it's, it's sold out on Amazon. It's num- number one in grief and loss at the moment. But you can get it on Kindle, because I got it this morning on my Kindle. And you can order it on Amazon, and you'll get it pretty soon. They're just a little bit backlogged. Okay, so you can order it on Amazon, but it's going to take some time. And everyone who knows me knows I'm a serious reader, and my suggestions and recommendations don't come lightly. But this is a book that, even if you're not dealing with loss at the moment, I strongly suggest you pick up. Um I only have read the first 30, 40 pages at the moment, but even those 30, 40 pages have, have really made a difference for me. So I, I'm just ecstatic to have you here. So I thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm yeah. honored to be here with all three of you. Um, Todd Otero, Todd, you looked like you were going to say something. No, I think that um, reading about loss and grief in general, even if you aren't experiencing it because you haven't lost someone, you definitely know someone that has gone through that or is going through that so you have to have those tools and I think that's the important thing and there there are many types of deaths mm-hmm. there's there's the death of, of a person we love there's the death of a marriage uh, the the death of a career mm-hmm. we're dealing mm-hmm. now in the news with people whose reputations mm-hmm. uh, uh, have been destroyed um, there are so the death of a business yep. uh, death of a friendship there are many kinds of losses. Exactly. You you start off the introduction of your book. Uh, it's a paragraph. I usually don't like reading parts of books, but I have to read this. Every one of us sooner or later walks through hell. 
the hell of being hurt, the hell of hurting another, the hell of cancer, the hell of reluctant thunking shuffle of earth upon the casket of someone, someone we deeply loved, the hell of divorce of a kid in trouble, of Alzheimer's, of addiction, of stress, of aging, of knowing that this year, like any year, may be our last. We all walk through hell. The point is to not come out empty-handed. The point is to make your life worthy of your suffering. So my first question is, how do we make life worthy of suffering? Yeah, that, that's a paraphrasing of Dostoevsky who said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. That he was suffering, as we all do, for no reason whatsoever and that no good could come of it. And let me start by saying this is not a book that glorifies suffering or pretends that suffering is somehow worth the insights it grants us. Mm -hmm. But neither is it worthless. There is Pain is a great and powerful teacher mm -hmm. mm. if we are willing and open students to pain's lessons. It is in many cases, only pain that really forces people to change their lives. You know, success doesn't teach us very much. It mm -hmm. just encourages us to keep doing the same over and over and over again. It's only pain that disrupts our life enough to force us to change our lives. Mm -hmm. So how do we live lives worthy of our suffering? Well, that depends on the nature of our suffering and it depends on who we are as people before, during, and after that suffering. One perfect example I can give you, which the three of you know well, is what we're doing right now in this show. If I had asked you before what you went through as a family, would the three of you have a radio show and have a foundation devoted to grief and loss and be together as brothers united in doing something that's really meaningful and brings value to others and to you, you, you would have looked at me mm -hmm. like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. and, and again, this is not to say that what we go through is worth it. But we don't get to choose the suffering that comes. You know, the great uh, sage Bob Marley said, when the rain falls, it don't fall on one man's house. <laughs> to be human <laughs> is mm. to suffer. Mm. That we don't choose, but we can choose what we make of our suffering. Mm. Yeah. Why, why do you think, why is it so hard for us humans to, to see that lesson? Mm. Well, uh, one of my favorite sayings is by the Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan, yeah, who like said, I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't the fish. <laughs> I, and and right? this, when you wrote this in the book, yeah. that I, I literally, this section, yeah. I went to my wife and said, you're reading this book, yeah. and I'm ordering it right now. Yeah. That, go ahead. So what does McLuhan mean? I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't the fish. Why doesn't a fish know it's in water? It's born in water. It lives in water. It dies in water. So ironically... The fish actually has the least perspective on its own reality of any creature on Earth mm. at that moment. Now, when does a fish discover water? When it's caught. When it's jerked out of the water at the end of a hook, wriggling, gasping for breath. That's when a fish discovers water. Mm -hmm. When do we discover good health? When we lose it. When do we discover the true depths and, and meaning of our love for another person? When that person is gone. Mm -hmm. Pain is the thing that 
jerks us out of our reality and ironically enables us for the first time to have some perspective on our lives. And that's one of pain's most powerful uh, antidotes to a life that lacks meaning or purpose. And, and again, not, not that it's worth what we go through, but that is a kind of collateral beauty mm-hmm. that comes from pain. You know, um, an ancient Jewish source called the Talmud, uh, which was written about 2,000 years ago, says, when you are visited by pain, examine your life. Now, that doesn't mean that we're blaming the victim, that you are living in some way that causes you to deserve this pain. Look, sometimes that's true. If you smoke, you you get lung cancer. Yeah, okay. But we all know that bad things happen to good people Mm -hmm. all the time. So the Talmud isn't saying examine your life as in you were living in a way that you deserve this. The Talmud is saying take this opportunity to change your life because of this pain and because of what it strips away. You know, I'm often asked how what I went through, which I I assume we'll get into at some point, you know, how did the painful experience that I went through change my life? And I immediately said the first time I was asked, well, I'm, I'm a nicer person. Mm. Now, I don't think I was a bad guy before this happened, but my capacity for empathy and kindness and patience is exponentially greater because of what I went through. Can you talk about what you went through? Yeah. Uh, so I've been a rabbi for 30 years, and it's a very large congregation. If Jews had a mega church, we would be it. Mm-hmm. It's a community of about 10,000 people. So I spent the first 27 years as a rabbi uh, listening to people on what I call in my office my couch of tears talk about their pain. I've seen thousands of people through very painful situations. And then about three years ago, which was 27 years into my rabbinate, I was in a, a very frightening car accident with my son from which I thought I had ultimately walked away from fine. And it was a hit and run. Airbags and the whole thing spun around. But I thought it was okay. And a couple of months later, I started getting these brief but incredibly intense shooting pains from my lower back down to my left toes. Like, paralyzing. But they were brief. And so, you know, the old workaholic that I was, I just ignored it and worked through it. And then they became more frequent, ignored it and worked through it. And then I got to a point where I was pulling into the garage one day and I was struck by an, a, a pain that was so intense and so unrelenting, unceasing, and severe that I thought I, I was going to pass out and I couldn't move my lower body. And I don't know if this has happened to you guys, but this was the first time in my life when my brain was telling my body to do something and it did not respond. You know, my brain was saying, move your legs. And I couldn't. Mm-hmm. because it, it hurt too much to move. I felt like if I blinked, I'd be writhing in pain. My wife calls my doctor. The doctor says, call the paramedics. You can't lift him out of the car. Again, the old overachieving workaholic me, I say, oh, I don't need the paramedics. And so I open the car door, and I lean my upper body out of the door, and I use gravity until I get to the tipping point, and it causes me to flop out of the car onto the floor of the garage. 
and I start using my upper body to drag my lower body, screaming, across the oil and the grease to get into the house. I get through the garage door into the house, and that door enters into my study at home. I curl up like a fetus on the floor and just start crying and screaming for morphine. Like, get me morphine, get me something, get it now, you know. And my wife calls the doctor, and, you know, one of the blessings in my life are doctors who really care about me. So within about 45 minutes, I had Oxy at the house, and I started taking Oxy. And that moved the pain from, uh, you know, maybe a 10 to a 9.5. I made it to the couch. And then, you know, I start the cycle of MRIs and injections and tests and drugs, the opioids and opioids and opioids and steroids and steroids and steroids. And I finally, nothing works, and they say, look, you've got to have spinal surgery. Uh, So I have the surgery, and the surgery is 10 days before the the most important holiday season for Jews called the High Holy Days, beginning of our spiritual year. And uh, I just, you know, felt a lot of pressure to be there. So my doctor said, look, this was 10 days after surgery was the holiday, and it was the reopening of this Mm -hmm beautiful sanctuary that I'd worked for 10 years to raise money to restore. And uh, the head of the Spinal Institute at Cedar said, look, I, I can get you up on your feet for about six hours. I can shoot you up with something and you can, you'll be able to stand for six hours and then you're going to be finished. And I let him do it. And that started another cycle of, you know, opioids and steroids and, and this went on for months and I worked through it as much as I could. I became clinically depressed. And to make a long story short, the book is a result of the fact that I realized that despite 27 years of helping people through their pain, until I experienced myself, I knew nothing about pain. Mm. Yeah. And I wanted to write this book to help open up this candid conversation about the real truth behind pain. It's, it's curses and it's opportunities. And the book is not about me, mostly, but I do tell the truth about my own situation. Mm-hmm. And then weave together a series of amazing stories of people who have come through very difficult things. And I think it does create a hopeful path for everyone who's suffering. And of course, you know, when you read that first paragraph, it's pretty evident that everyone suffers. To be human is to suffer. Yeah, and and here's another quote from the book regarding that. It took years for me to appreciate pain's victory. Now I am grateful for my defeat. It forced me to change my stubborn ways. It forced me to make peace with age, flesh, bone, decline, limitation, and the simple fact that we are all merely human. We can only do so much. Then we have to let go. I thought that was pretty powerful. Yes. Because I think we talk about this a lot. You know, we're so, I don't want to say trained, but we come from the mentality that you could do anything and, you know, you got to get past this. And even my son who's here, I always tell him you could do everything, you know, but maybe that's the wrong approach. You know? Well, I would say this. Uh, I say to my staff often, we can do anything, but we can't do everything. You have to make choices in order to lead a balanced life that doesn't kill you. And pain 
ultimately teaches humility. And for me, the way I define spirituality, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? That's, such a, that's a word that's so overused, it's lost its meaning. Mm. But for me, spirituality means that we can hold within our hearts and souls two contradictory truths. One, the, the truth of humility, that we, we really aren't all that powerful. We really aren't in control. And this is what pain comes to teach us. Mm. Holding that truth right alongside the truth that we are unique and we matter and we are capable of greatness and we are capable of change. We are capable of changing ourselves and we are capable of changing the world. Those two feelings of greatness and humility held within the same heart and soul are to me the essence of what it means to be a spiritual person. Mm. And you do not learn the former, humility, without pain. Mm. Uh, another section of the book that had me really just, that really touched my soul was when you were talking about the people of Auschwitz. 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 Yes, the concentration camp. Um, that was so powerful to yes. me because um, without letting you talk about it, but you just said how in Auschwitz there's no children. Yes. That's powerful. And yes. then and then the whole... Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So I'll never forget. I, I was a, a student in Jerusalem about 35 years ago, and I went to a lecture by uh, a man who was the youngest child to survive Auschwitz. He went in at six years old, came out at, you know, 10 or 11. The first thing he said in his talk was, there were no children in Auschwitz because the moment you entered that hell, you were an adult. That is, uh, it's powerful because that's exactly how I felt when I lost my mother. Right. I swear I was a, I, I, had, I was an adult the next day. I didn't care about anything. I had all my fear of the illusion of of fear was like just gone. Yes. And and um, pain matures you, no matter your age. Yeah. Yeah, another section I'm going to read from your book. You don't really become a grown-up until you suffer some sort of real and deep pain. This means that some children can become adults at six, and some adults can remain children well into their 60s until their parents die, or their own body fails in some critical way, or their child, the light of their eyes, succumbs to disease or death, or their life crumbles during a divorce or a business or moral failure. And I th- I think that's very accurate in a, in a, in a kind of sad I don't want to say sad way, but in a real way. In a necessary way. In a necessary way. Yes. I just thought that was so powerful because... You know, I remember uh, talking to the parents of a three-month-old baby who uh, had a a very rare disease. I write about them in the book. Their names were Barry and Michelle. They had a a three-month-old baby who died of a disease called Menke's disease, a very rare disease. And they knew he was going to die. And they also had an older child who was about three at the time. And they said, what's going to happen to him? His name was Aiden. Uh, what's going to happen when, when, you know, Aiden dies? What's going to happen to our older boy? And uh, I said, he's going to have an old soul. Mm. And it's, they have said to me on many occasions, especially Barry, the dad, you were right. He 
he has a, his name is Quinn. He has an old soul. And again, not trying at all to minimize the, the, the pain of the loss, but they also have a beautiful daughter who they never would have otherwise had. And I'm not saying it was worth it. Yeah. You know, I have a, a friend, I, I briefly mentioned the book, who had three different cancers, three times, three different forms of cancer. And the third one was fatal. And I visited him in the hospital when he was dying of the third cancer. And he looked up at me and he said, you know, Steve, this much character I don't need. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not saying it's worth any of this. Yeah. Right? Right. I'm not saying it was worth the death of that baby so they had this, this beautiful girl. That's not the point. Yeah. The point really is that, in a way, and again, this has to do with the spirituality of holding paradoxes together. In a way, we really aren't whole until we're broken. You know, there, there's uh, uh, places in the Bible where it says God puts God's words upon our hearts. So the ancient sages asked this question, why upon our hearts? Why not in our hearts? Certainly God, if God has the power to place God's words on our hearts, God has the power to place God's words in our hearts. What's the problem? And the answer the sages give is that God places God's words upon our hearts. And it isn't until our hearts are broken that the words can enter. Mm. So beautiful. That's great. That's that powerful. Taj Chow, you guys have any? Um, ahead, I was wondering about your depression mm-hmm. aspect of it because yeah. um, that's something that people go through in that way. And can you talk a little about that? Sure. So I've never been a depressed person. I've always been an optimistic guy, and you know, yeah. I could I could do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, you know, had this terrible pain and start taking all these opioids like candy mm-hmm. and by the way they don't make you high they just move the pain from a 10 to a 9 mm-hmm. you know so you can breathe and uh, and steroids mm-hmm. and I became just I, I lost any sense of caring about anything I woke up and didn't care about anything it is so dark and heavy it's an endless dark tunnel. Mm-hmm. And one of my doctors called me to see how I was doing, and I said, I, I, I just don't want to, I, I don't care about anything. I don't want to go, I don't want to do, I don't want to move. If you had come to me during that period and said, uh, hey, listen, Steve, I've been granted special powers, and I can grant any wish you have, world peace, cure cancer, whatever I would have said Taj leave me alone just go away that's how bad it was mm-hmm. and when I s- explained how I was feeling to him he said to me well you're depressed and I thought to myself wow this is what depression is this is how 20 million people in America feel every day I will never dismiss that pain again. And by the way, he said you have something called post-steroidal dysphoria. This is because of all the drugs you've been on, and we're going to taper you off these drugs. You have to detox off these drugs, and it's going to go away. So the other thing about this was that didn't help. I wasn't any less depressed knowing why I was depressed. Mm -hmm. It's like... If you know your thumb hurts because you hit it with a hammer, <laughs> it still hurts. It still hurts. Yeah. Like it doesn't hurt any less because yeah. you know how it happened. Yeah. So I was really in a deep hole, and 
it was only through this is a little hard for me to talk about um, it was only because of my amazing wife her steadfast love and my reaching out to a very talented psychiatrist and getting off of the drugs, the pain meds, and a lot of time and hard work did I find my way through that darkness, which leads me to another very important point in the book. There's a, a piece in the book called The Prisoner Cannot Free Himself. Mm-hmm. One of the things that suffering can teach us is to reach out. No one endures suffering better alone. No one. Yeah. And one of the humbling things about pain is it can force us to reach out to people who love us and, and to professionals who can help. And, I, and yes, you will be disappointed by some people, but you will be amazed by others. You know, I say in the book, yeah. when you reach out for help, the people who matter don't mind. And the people who mind don't matter. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. We're here with uh, Rabbi Steve, Steve Leader, uh, author of More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transform us, Transforms Us. Um, there's another excerpt I want to just read about. Now, read out. But y- y- when you wrote this book, were you in Italy writing it? Well, so yes and no. I took a three-month sabbatical. My wife's a painter. She's an amazing painter. And I, I needed three months away from my day job, which is mm-hmm. very demanding, uh, to do most of the heavy lifting in, a, in putting the book together. I'd written a lot of the pieces, but a lot of work was yet to do. So we went to Florence for three months, and I, I really did most of the heavy lifting for the book when in Florence. I, I asked because in the, there's a section where this is quote I find that when most people even total strangers hear about the topic of this book they often want to tell me about something painful that has happened to them it is the most remarkable thing people want to pour it out people need to pour it out if, correct me if I'm wrong there was a woman there mm-hmm. that when she found out you were write, writing a book on grief she started telling you about her a, a book about pain which mm-hmm. grief is a part of you know okay. but there are many forms of pain not so this woman in Florence uh, We I was at a lecture and uh, about a famous art dealer and kind of bored, frankly. And somebody who I went to the lecture with knew this other woman and said, oh, these are my friends from L.A. He's writing a book about pain and, and what we learned from it. She immediately came up to my mother, who lives in London, just had a double mastectomy last week, and I was home, and now I'm here, and I'm so worried. And I kind of walked her through these these steps that would help her. You know, the book is divided into three sections, sections related to the journey of pain, surviving, healing, and growing. The first thing you have to do is survive this. Mm-hmm. So I gave her some strategies you know, to survive this painful experience and some strategies to share with her parents. Because you know, cancer metastasizes to the whole family. Yeah. Right, everyone gets it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One person gets treated, but everyone has it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no beginning, middle, and end to cancer. There's just a beginning and a middle <laughs> because you worry for the rest of your life. My wife had cancer. 35 years ago, she worries every three months when they draw that blood. So I gave her some coping strategies. And I will tell you, you know, I'm doing a lot of uh, serious radio shows and, and, and TV interviews about this book. 
before I get up from my seat and make it to the door of these studios, the engineers, the producers, they come up to me and just start pouring out their pain. Would you please sign this book for my boyfriend? He's trying to get off of opioids. Would you please sign this book You know, for our producer? She just lost her father. Would you please sign this book? It is definitionally what it means to be human, is, is to suffer pain. That person next to you on the bus, on the subway, on the 405, at the ball game, at the movie, that person sitting next to you is in pain. And you know... I find that remembering that everyone is wounded makes it a lot easier to forgive. Yeah, that's great. Talking about forgiving, what advice would you give to someone if they are the reason mm. they cause pain on someone? Yes. Or, you know, yeah. they are the inflictor. Yes. What, what, because when, when you're a remorseful person and a loving person, that can hurt. You know, that can cause depression. Oh, it's its own world of pain. What would you suggest to that person? So, you know, there is a special pain reserved for the betrayer, Hmm. just as there is for the betrayed, but it's a different kind of pain, the guilt and the shame. Um, In the book, there's this beautiful piece called Hurt and Run, and it's a juxtaposition of two stories that happen uh, to two families in my congregation in like a three-month period just to give you a little insight into how crazy my job is. <laughs> so I had two families in my congregation a couple of years ago, both lost loved ones who were pedestrians hit by cars and killed. In the first case, it was a hit and run. And it took a year and a half to find the perpetrator. And the perpetrator was recorded in the interrogation room in the police station when she didn't know they were recording, saying to her husband, just lie, just lie about everything. She had ample opportunity to do the right thing and and for a year and a half tampered with evidence, never confessed, never came forward. And this family today is mired in nothing but pain management day after day. They're broken. Mm. In the other case, a woman who was driving uh, in the Palisades here in Los Angeles, her cell phone, she's had her little boy in the car with her, her cell phone slid off the center console console onto the floor and she was reaching down fumbling for her cell phone and boom oh wow she hit an elderly man in the crosswalk Mm. she stopped she got out she ran to help him she called 911 she took care of her little boy uh went through horrible criminal case went through a civil case did hundreds of hours community service volunteered talking about the dangers of texting and driving in high schools and when everything all the litigation was finally behind her I get this call from the widow of the man she had killed, who was a Holocaust survivor. And she says to me, Rabbi, the woman who killed my husband wants to meet with me to seek my forgiveness. Do I have to meet her? I said, you do. And then she said, will you be with me? And I said, I will. So I met with her and her son to prepare them for this meeting. And then the meeting takes place in my office. And this frail, frightened, you know, damaged woman who killed this man comes into my office and sits down, and then the the widow and the son of the man she killed come in and sit down. And she says the following, the, 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 the perpetrator, the driver of the car, she says, I was wrong. I was so wrong, 
and I am so sorry. And, and I have done what I can, and I will do what I can, and I know I can never bring him back. I was wrong. And then this big burly guy who's the son of the man who was killed looks at her and says, can I ask you a question? And she says, yes. And he looks at her and he says, how's your son? He was so scared that day. And she says, he's, he's okay, better. And then this woman, she's weeping, and then this woman whose husband was killed survived the Holocaust, gets up, moves over to the chair where this woman was sitting, cups her face in her hands, looks in her eyes, and says to her, God bless you, and kisses her cheeks while the tears are falling. It was the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. Mm. Now, what made this possible? was that the, the person who was the cause of the pain said the three most difficult words for human beings to say, which are not, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry can mean a lot of things. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry this happened. I'm sorry you feel like I, you know. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. Is, mm-hmm. a, is the highest degree of responsibility and culpability, mm-hmm. and it changes everything. It takes the sting out right away. And, and so that's one of the things the perpetrator can do. The other thing is if the harm that you've done is because of some form of, you know, addiction or repetitive behavior, you have to confess out loud. You have to change that behavior. And when presented with another opportunity to behave in that way, you don't. Then you merit forgiveness. And it's good to carry a little bit of guilt and shame. Look, I say at the end of this essay, Hurt and Run, very few people, if any, reading this book will ever hit and run. But we all hurt and run. We all have left someone else's feelings behind like roadkill. Mm -hmm. All of us. You turn around. You go back. You say, I was wrong. It will never happen again. Please forgive me. It's powerful stuff. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome stuff, Rabbi Okay, so I was wrong. Very important words that you you must the adapt. most important the most important words. Now here's seven words you don't care for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me know if you need anything. Yeah. We should eliminate that phrase you say, right? Yes. I uh, when you have a friend in trouble, or an acquaintance, or a colleague, whatever it is, never say, "Let me know if you need anything." It is the cheapest kind of empathy. It's false empathy. It's generally said with the hope that the person won't ask for anything. And even if it's sincerely said, it's still putting the burden back upon the person who's suffering. Hmm. You're adding to their suffering by giving them the responsibility of telling you what you can do or should do. You should just Anticipate. You know, I try to live my life by a few very simple ideas. One of them is treat people the way you would want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just ask yourself, if I were in her circumstances, if I was in his, in his circumstances, what would I want? Whatever it is, figure it out and do it. You know, car, pick up the carpool responsibilities, drop off a hot meal, arrange for some play dates, send a massage therapist to the house, you know, pick up the groceries, call every day. Mm. 
listen, show up, walk in the door and say nothing. But you figure it out. Don't force the person who's suffering to tell you how to be a good person. Yeah. I actually am guilty of that. I say, let me know if you need anything. And it, and it comes, you know how I, and I, I do feel it comes from the right place because after I'll say, I mean it. Yes. You know what I mean? But you're it's still like, giving the suffering person I agree with homework. That. I agree. They don't need it. You know what my problem is, uh, Rabbi Steve? I, I'm such a, I guess, introverted or private person that I don't like to burden people myself. So I instantly put myself in there, or at least I think I am. I also have to make the realization that I'm different than others. You know, some... You're, you look, if you were suffering, whatever the form of suffering is, and you have suffered, you went through... Yeah. One of the most horrible things a person can endure. Yeah. You know who showed up. Yeah. And you know who didn't. That's true. And you know who sent a card or who sent some flowers or who handed you a book like More Beautiful Than Before, How mm-hmm. Suffering Transforms Us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. You aren't different. So just treat people the way you, the in the best ways you were treated. If you have a friend family member, a loved one that just suffered a terrible pain, suffered a terrible loss, and they're very quiet on it. They're not opening up. They're not talking. What advice would you give me as the friend? Hang around the hoop. Stick around. Just stick around. You know. And by the way, one of the things I've learned about grief, which is counterintuitive, is that People who are mourning, they don't really necessarily want you to show up with your kind of fake, sad face like, oh, I'm so... No. They want you to be who you are, who you were in life. That's who they want you to be in death. Just be with them as who you were. If you were a joker, joke. If you were a feeder, feed. If if you're a storyteller, tell them a story about the person they love. Don't put on this act. You know, um, it's not what people need. And and don't say, I can't imagine how you're feeling. That's not true. We imagine these things all the time. We all imagine a parent dying. We all imagine a kid dying. You know, just be. The Navajo Indians have this beautiful custom. Navajo, uh, Navajo Native Americans have this beautiful custom, a mourning custom, which is when someone in the village dies, you go to the mourner's home, you walk in the door, you sit down, you say nothing. You stay for a while, and then you leave. You, you just show up. You don't have to say anything. You know, I was. There's a story in the book about a man whose 30 year old daughter was killed in a car accident, and there was a prayer service after the funeral in his home, and he looked around at this circle of people, praying and singing, and there with him, and he said, "This changes nothing, but it means everything." Mm. Mm-hmm. Do not underestimate the power of just walking in that door. Just show up. Is that what? I, I'm sorry. I don't. I, my two best friends were Jewish. Yeah, but I didn't pick up any Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, probably because they didn't know any. Hineni. <laughs> Hineni. Yes. Hineni. Hineni in Hebrew means "Here I am." Here I am. It's said by the two greatest greatest men in the Bible, Moses and Abraham. And I'm talking about the Hebrew Bible, of course. Yeah. Because there's a great third man if you if you keep going. Yeah, Hineni. That's what they say when they're called by God. Hineni. Here I am. Wow. Taj, do you have any? I see you with your, yeah, the, with your um, Twitter. Yeah, there's uh, Nicole's asking. Hi, I've lived um, during more uh, forty years with grief without having without 
forced to talk to anyone about it. Do you think it's possible to become better after such a long period? Like, Well, I don't think, Nicole, you should expect a different result unless you change your behavior. Mm-hmm. If you're still carrying this terrible grief after 40 years because you haven't reached out. Remember this piece in the book, The Prisoner Cannot Free Himself? If not talking about it hasn't worked, it's time to start. It's time to start talking. Yeah. 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 I have a quick question. Yeah. Um, talking about pain, what would you say to the person that, because that, we all have pain, we mm-hmm. all experience pain at one point in our life, what would you say to the person that suppresses it, that doesn't want to deal with it, or that numbs it, or, you know, because they refuse to deal with it, it comes out in anger? Yeah. Or there's guilt. What would you say to that person that there's obviously pain, but they don't know how to handle it or don't or choose to not deal with it and, and keep it? You know how in the in the recovery world, the addiction world, there's this concept of you have to hit bottom. That person has to hit bottom, real bottom. And people who have a high pain threshold, it means the bottom is pretty far down. I was in a way like that, you know. My wife told me for years, you're, you're overworking. You're, all, you're giving, 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 taking care of, taking care of, taking care of. And it causes, you know, the, the cliches become cliches because they're true. And there's this cliche of the wounded healer. I was the wounded healer. I was bitter because of... My life was a one-way street of just giving and giving and giving and taking care of others and taking care of others and carrying the pain of so many people. And I just ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. And look, I pull some punches in the book. It's not a complete pulling back of the curtain on my life. I became an angry, bitter person in many ways. Now, I disguised it, but I carried it. I'll never forget, after my back surgery, a trustee of the congregation called me a woman because women are more intuitive about these things than men generally. She called me and she said, you know, Steve, you broke your back for the congregation. Now, medically, she was incorrect. But spiritually, she was right. I broke my back for the place. Now, my wife had been telling me, you're going to break your back for this place for 30, 27 years, and I ignored her. Mm-hmm. Because my threshold for pain, the amount of weight I can carry, we don't need to get into my troubled childhood, but I was taught at a very young age to shut up and carry it. You know, mm-hmm. and that turned out to be the greatest enemy of my life. And this is the tricky part: the reason for my success. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's a trap. Yeah. It's a trap. So I would say again, you can try speaking to this person and showing them the signs. And if they're an open-minded person, there's a chance they'll get help. And they need help. But sometimes often we have to break before we can become whole but our job as the surrounding supporting cast is to continue to you hang around, hang around that around hoop you keep trying you hang around the hoop <laughs> I like it that's right alright um, unfortunately Rabbi Steve it always happens with great guests we're short on time um, but you did an awesome job with this book and like, like I said before we went on air I think this is something that I don't know if this sounds like an insult or it's the wrong thing to say. No, it's it a compliment. Like it's going to outlive you. It's a very powerful 
um, piece of literature you wrote, and I just want to commend you on that. It's, Thank it's, you. It's huge. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, More Beautiful Than Before uh, is the name of the book. How Suffering Transforms Us, the subtitle of the book. Um, Rabbi Steve, we'd like to close the show with 30 seconds from you. Anything you want to say, anything you want to talk about, um, 30 seconds is what we like to give. I'd like to read, if I could, just a brief little paragraph. Yeah. Um, um, I can't find it quickly in the book. I'll tell you a little story. The book ends with this story about the famous violinist Yitzhak Perlman, who, as you probably know, has had polio his whole life. And he went out on stage to play a concerto and the string broke on his violin. And he proceeded to transpose the music in his head and change the fingerings and play the entire concerto with a broken string. And of course, when he finishes, the audience went crazy, insane. He quieted the audience down and then he said to them, it's my job to make music with what remains. (laughs) And he wasn't talking about his violin. He was talking about his life. So there's a beautiful melody that comes after suffering. The sun rises no matter how dark the night. It's beautiful. <laughs> That's powerful, Rabbi yeah. Steve. Uh, th- again, thank you. On behalf of my brothers yes. and our community, thank you, thank you so much, Rabbi Steve. It's an honor to be with you. Well, that's our show for today. Um, I hope you guys learned a lot. I, I assume you did. I learned a lot. Um, yeah. My brothers are, are nodding. Um, it's always powerful when you learn something, um, when you grow as a person. I think no one is perfect, obviously, but we can all do our do our best to improve and to learn about life. Um, it's, a, it's a tough road, but it's a road that we all um, will, will take. And um, we all have to deal with suffering, and and like like what our DDJF motto is: you have to learn how to lose, you have to learn how to deal with the pain. It actually makes life a lot more fulfilling and stronger. With that said, um, again, if you need any help, please seek it. Open up to your friends. For me, it was actually my dog who played a huge role. Um, I got to get some of my emotions out. Uh, obviously, my uncle, my br- my brothers would be saying similar things, but. I just want to make sure you guys know that do not keep things inside and make sure you speak up and, and you know, and embrace those around you. That's pretty much it for our show. Um, we love you all, and make sure you listen next week. We'll be here Wednesday at 1 p.m. Taj, Cher, you guys have anything? I would say. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank well, you. You got to come book. back, too. Get the book, people. Yeah. We've got to have them back. Yes. More beautiful than before, how suffering transforms us. Yeah. All right, you guys. Take care. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you for listening to The Power of Love. We are here to provide hope, resources, and a community so no one feels alone in their grief. Support for our Power of Love radio show comes from a variety of generous donors, including supporters from institutions, individuals, and corporations through the D.D. Jackson Foundation. DDJF is a nonprofit 501c3 organization.